Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Muguditwa and I'm your podcast host. And I am joined by Dr. Mark Ostrovsky. Dr. Mark is, or Mark, as he's asked me to call him, is a specialist physician and gastroenterologist. And he joins us for this episode to discuss treatment goals for an inflammatory bowel disease or IBD diagnosis. Everyone, welcome to you, Dr. Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please tell us a little about yourself and what your occupation entails. What does doctor do? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, really looking forward to this. Uh, so just by way of introduction, I am a specialist physician and a medical gastroenterologist. Um, I trained uh, in Johannesburg and uh, I've been now in private practice for just short on two years. I practice here at Santon Mediclinic, which is not too far from where we're sitting at the moment. My my real interest, in fact, is in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, quite passionate about it, passionate about uh, my patients and, um, uh, and the whole treatment journey that we all undergo together. So uh, other than that, I also do general gastroenterology, which is quite broad. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Okay, well, I think we're in the right hands to have the conversation today. So again, uh, really glad that we're in conversation together. So maybe just to kick off the conversation. I mean, we have had previous episodes, you know, of the Hashtag Fearing Pod, where we have discussed IBD. And I think what's important to do before we dive into the topic of treatment goals for IBD, that we just have a bit of a recap on what is IBD? Absolutely. So it's quite a loaded question for a, a short answer, but really to be just to be quite precise, um, inflammatory bowel disease is an autoimmune disease uh, that uh, is made up of two big, big disease processes. Uh, the one is Crohn's disease and the other is ulcerative colitis. And uh, essentially, just for a bit of pathophysiology, not to get too caught up in all of that, but it's really just an abnormal immune response that occurs in the gut uh, at a point where it should not. So the immune system really acts inappropriately against normal bacterial organisms that should be in the gut and results in an inflammatory response. We call it dysbiosis. And essentially, um, you know, it results in lots of ulceration, inflammation, and that's often what present, what results in the symptoms that patients present with. You know, ulcerative colitis is specific to the colon, uh, whereas Crohn's disease, uh, affects the whole gastrointestinal tract from the mouth all the way down, uh, to the anus. Uh, and both diseases can affect organ systems outside of the gastrointestinal tract. And they can really be debilitating for patients. So uh, that's just a little bit of background. So maybe just to backtrack a little bit, maybe let's dive deeper into some of the causes and symptoms of IBD. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of causes, um, jury's out just a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of components. Um, there are genetics. So uh, the genetic component is is very real. Uh, often, you know, when you find a person or a patient, a newly diagnosed patient with IBD, uh, you always take a history in the family and inevitably you'll find there'll be an uncle, auntie, cousin or parents or grandparents who've, uh, uh, who had one or, or both of those disease processes. So, so genetics is key. Mm. Um, and then there's an environmental factor component. Um, so there'll be 
um, a trigger, whatever that might be, whether it is something someone's eaten, if they've mm-hmm. got an infection in their gut at some point in time, um, and that triggers this whole immune dysbiosis, so this abnormal immune response to occur. So, so that's just a little bit about um, you know why it happens mm. and in whom it happens, and then in terms of symptoms, not always the same for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So, in Crohn's disease, the the main symptom that patients present often with is abdominal pain. Uh, so that's often a clue for us uh, with other issues of weight loss. Um, you know, um, fatigue is a big one, and then always the concern is blood in the stool. So. In, in ulcerative colitis, uh, the common symptom really is bloody diarrhea. That's really the, the the crux. And again, you can have some of the other symptoms as well. So, you know, as a as a, a gastroenterologist, but as any doctor mm. listening to this, always bloody stool with um, weight loss, unexplained weight loss is always an alarm sign that someone need, we need to rule out something like inflammatory bowel disease. And doctor, if, I mean, if you were... You know, obviously, if somebody presents with with the symptoms that you've just spoken about, uh, what are some of the diagnostic tests that you typically would perform um, to ascertain that this is indeed IBD? Absolutely, again, excellent question. Um, so the the crux to actually to answer that question, um, there's no one golden diagnostic modality to make the diagnosis, and that's very important. So what would inevitably happen is we would run a number of tests, um, ranging from first and foremost, we would always just we take a good history from the patient, and that always gives us the indication or the clue that uh, this is possibly what we're dealing with. Mm. Uh, and once we are concerned, we would go and run a battery of some blood tests. We'd look at uh, just some basic investigations, but always importantly are the inflammatory markers that we'd look for in the bloods. We'd look for a hemoglobin, look for iron deficiency. Those are all possible clues. Um, and uh, other things we'd look at is uh, stool. A stool sample is very, very important and mm. unfortunately not a pleasant uh, investigation for patients to undergo. Mm. Um, but it's very important. It gives us a lot of information. Again, it helps us to see is there an infective issue. It helps us to see is there, is there an actual inflammatory process going on. And uh, after after that, we would go on to uh, endoscopy. Endoscopy is very important. Um, endoscopy meaning predominantly a colonoscopy, mm. um, which I would imagine we'll probably unpack a little bit more. Uh, and then further imaging um, diagnostic modalities as well, like a CT scan or an MRI scan. So it really is quite a uh, a lengthy process mm. uh, in terms of, you know, really nailing down the diagnosis. And, and what makes it tricky is that there is no gold standard. There's no, you know, one test and this is your diagnosis. We, we, we have to uh, put everything together. And I suppose I'm sort of curiously sitting here now and imagining myself as a patient and and what comes to mind is what what is the period or length of time that this diagnostic phase typically takes? Absolutely. So um, traditionally it can be up to 18 months to two years. So patients will have these symptoms and they will um, they'll seek medical advice um, and let's say they may get treated for something like an infective diarrhea. They'll get an antibiotic and they might improve and they'll go off they'll go and then it will rear its head again and they may get seen again and they may get treated for something else and something else. And eventually um, if they see somebody who's thought about it, mm. thought about the diagnosis and thought about the disease, oftentimes that's when the patient then will get referred for the relevant investigation. So, but traditionally speaking, 18 months to two years, as long as that, I, I somehow want to think that um, 
as medical practitioners, we're getting a little bit better at diagnosing it because we're thinking about it more. Mm. And that's another message that we're trying to get out to our colleagues to just think about it. You know, and that's, you know, really, really important because if you don't think about something, you'll never diagnose it, right? Mm. So um, I, I want to hope we're getting a bit better at that. But that's an international sort of thing. That's not just here. That's all over. Mm. Um, so it does, it, it can take that amount of time. Okay. So, so doctor, we're now at the point where a diagnosis has been made, and I'm wanting to move in the direction of our topic for today. So a diagnosis has been uh, made. Let's talk a little bit about the importance then of establishing clear treatment goals. Absolutely. So, um, and I think this is so relevant to this podcast. Um, it's, it's so important as the healthcare practitioner to develop a rapport with your patients because you know, when you're telling a patient they've got ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, it's not just you have the flu, off you go. You're talking about a chronic disease process. You're talking about this is a lifelong disease. You're talking about follow-up regularly. You're talking about, you know, endoscopy. You're talking about blood tests, stool samples, different management. And it can be so overwhelming for a patient, mm. especially in the beginning, Um you know, and, and I think us as, as health practitioners, very much me included in that, we we sometimes um we sometimes don't or we sometimes maybe forget that component and we mm. sort of rush into, okay, you have Crohn's or you have ulcerative colitis and these are your treatment choices and let's start today. Um a really big factor is actually to just slow down because this patient's got a lot to digest mm. um in terms of what does this mean? Um, you know, oftentimes when we make the diagnosis, you want to give the patient information about their disease. But oftentimes they stop listening when you mention the word ulcerative colitis and they're actually in a state of shock. They, they don't know what to do with that information. So um, it's important to have, as I say, a really good rapport with your patients to just mm. sort of really, they need to know that you're in their corner and you're there to help them and manage all the components, not mm. just the medical components, but all the components of the disease. And that speaks to setting targets because it's all about, you know, we, we talk about this treat to target component when we, when we're treating both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And oftentimes, you know, we're focusing in on the, on the biological treatment goals, mm. you know, um, but also there are the patient goals. And, and, and it is so important that right in the beginning of the conversation with your patient that, we marry the two because so often um, we get stuck on the, you know, we want to achieve mucosal healing. Mm. But to a patient, that may not mean anything. The patient wants to feel better. It's true. The patient wants to have a normal sexual activity. They want to be able to have normal meals without worrying about where the loo is. So it's so important that as the team of the patient and the doctor mm. that this gets, you know, sort of discussed right up front. And that's what's so important about setting treatment targets and real treatment goals for both the mm. provider and the patient. I mean, I love, I love what you've just said. And I think for me, it's just such a compassionate approach to, to everything. And I suppose as you were talking about time number one, it takes a significant amount of time to get to the stage of diagnosis number one. Now you're diagnosed with this thing, ulcerative colitis. I mean, I'm a words person, and even that's a bit hefty for me, you know, that, that it's important then for, for, for that rapport to be built. So, so I want to get a little spicy even, if you sure. will, doctor, and, and, and respectfully so. I mean, if I go to a doctor and I have my standard 15 minutes consultation time, 
how does this rapport building happen? <laughs> because because often, and this is the experience most of us have as patients, that you kind of are in there, you're told this is what the issue is, and you are given that biological this is what it means in medical terms. Oftentimes it flies above your head. And then you're sitting at home, you're processing this and you're going, no man, what, you know, and, and, and so I, I want, I want to ask the question, when does this rapport building happen? I think it's wonderful to aspire to. How do doctors make it happen? Can I, can I demand for my doctor to build rapport with me? <laughs> sure. Um, don't know how to answer that one. Sure. Uh, I, I will just speak, I suppose, and I'm by no means saying that I report all my patients. I try my best. Sure. Um, I try to take time. I do mm. try to take time. So as an example, um, my appointments are an hour long for an initial consult and 30 minutes for a follow-up. So I'm not um, – I'm trying, and I've done that. One of the reasons, I mean, this is just my own personal thing, is exactly that. I don't want to feel – I don't want you to feel as mm. the patient that you've come in here – and I just want to quickly jot down my script and off you go. And, and this is your, so, so I think, I think it's important to spend time. You have to spend time with your patient to try and help them understand because we also know mm. if a patient has an understanding of what is the problem, the chances of the patient buying in mm. is that much better and the chances of a good outcome are that much better. So and I think I that's a beautiful you, motivation, yeah. right? That 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 essentially, as you're investing this time or putting in this time, it has a resultant impact on other factors, including the potential outcome. Absolutely. So so if I lose you at that initial consultation, uh, you are either going to go into denial about your condition and not seek th- therapy and develop possible complications, and then I've lost an opportunity to treat you. So, so it's all about, um, it's really that, that initial, and I mean, I suppose the, the rapport continues and, and the treatment journey, like I said, this is chronic. So this, this is a, you need to try and maintain this lifelong, right? But I'm saying right up front, that initial visit, that initial period of time is so important. So to answer your initial question, how do you do it? I don't know what the answer is. I feel though that giving your patient time is, is probably, time and empathy, right? Are probably mm. the, uh, the two important components there. And I'll take those two, time and empathy. So, so doctor, let's, let's build on this. So, so I now have a sense that I have IBD. You've given me a little bit of time. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, a journey that involves me getting to a better place. So, you know, how, how do you go about determining the most suitable treatment plan then, uh, for this person who's been diagnosed with IBD? So when you can answer that question, you could probably win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so uh, at the moment, it's it's a bit of a it's it's such a hot topic. Um, it's what drug do you use for what patient, and it is there isn't a clear cut answer. So in terms of we're talking about in twenty twenty three now and beyond, we're talking about precision medicine, right? So what we're actually trying to do um, is scientifically work out which drug is going to be the best for which patient. And that's going to be based on possible uh, DNA markers and 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 specific at an absolute like biochemical level, right? But we're not there yet. So, mm. so what, and this and this refers to that precision medicine. Precision medicine. So okay. we want to work out that if Mr. Smith has Crohn's disease, but he's got X gene, we should not give drug X, but we should rather give drug Y. Uh-huh. So that that's almost how well not that is exactly what we're trying to do. So, but we're not there yet. So, and, and what's, what's making this, um, really an interesting space is 
um, which is fantastic and exciting, is more and more drugs are becoming available. Okay. So, but what makes that difficult as the practitioner is, okay, great, but now what? So mm. who do I give who which do I drug give to? what? You know, because now there's, it's all good and well that there's more drug therapy, but where do I position? It's all about drug positioning, mm. right? So what we try and do in the beginning, again, in that early phase is we try phenotype our patient. So we try and figure out, right, Mr. Smith has got Crohn's and it's only involving his ileum, for example, or Mr. Smith has got a pancolitis or Mr. Smith has got perianal disease or he's got joint. So we really have to phenotype the disease process, figure out where in the gastrointestinal tract is the, the disease predominantly. Are there extra intestinal manifestations? And by that, I mean, you know, are there joint pains? Are there eye issues? Are there skin manifestations? Is there iron deficiency? And, you know. Are there other conditions? Are there other conditions? Absolutely. It's a great point. Are there comorbidities? Age is very, very important because a lot of our drugs, safety is a massive component. Mm. So age is a huge thing. Other comorbidities is a huge thing. So we really have to, we're not just looking at the Crohn's. We've got to look at the whole of Mr. Smith. So that we know, right, these are the issues that we need to worry about. What is his cancer risk? Mm. Some of the drugs we use have got increased cancer risk. So there's so much that, that really goes into, um, you know, making that decision. And we also know, this is another very important point, is oftentimes our first drug that we use, is the, it's, it's the most effective. So we want to make sure we use the right drug. For the right Say that patient. again. You said the first drug you use in the treatment. In the treatment, often, oftentimes is is going to have its best effect up front. So you want to make sure you're using the right drug mm. with the most efficacy, but the best safety profile for that patient. Sure. So it is actually, it's a very complex decision-making process. Um, and oftentimes, um, we'll discuss it amongst each other with various colleagues, you know, to sort of say we've got... A patient with, you know, this sort of this disease process to this extent, these extra intestinal manifestations, what would you do? And we have an MDT meeting once a month um, amongst gastroenterologists, both medical and surgical, and we discuss difficult cases. And we and and, and oftentimes there's a gray area and there's often not a wrong and a right either because it's it's not a clear cut answer because we're not yet at the point of precision medicine. And hopefully one day we'll get there. I want to. I want to go back to to to, to when I asked you to repeat, kind of. So, so the first drug the person gets, you know, the first drug that's administered is the one that's likely to have the most success. Often, or, often, often. Okay. Uh, is this linked at all to to treat to target in yeah, IBD management? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, it is. Um, so what we would do is again once we phenotype the disease, and we set those targets up front. So. I'm going to set my targets for you and say, I want you to be symptom-free. I want you to have those ulcers in your colon healed up. You know, I want your joints to feel great. I want you to have energy. I want all this to be good. But I also am aiming for this sort of mucosal healing concept that we talk about because we also know that um, ongoing inflammation, ongoing inflammatory burden is what drives complications in IBD. Right, and that means in Crohn's disease that talks about stricturing, that talks about fistulizing disease, um, and all of those things affect risk of requiring surgery, which mm. has its own issues, right, and creates its own morbidity. Um, and so, and so, you know, that all becomes very relevant. And in in in, in ulcerative colitis, there's a risk of an increased risk of potentially an increased risk of cancer of the colon. And so, again, we know that 
the inflammatory burden is what drives these things. So we want to make sure that we set realistic goals. And from a patient point of view, we always want the patient to weigh in and what's important for them. You know, and like I say, it doesn't always marry what we want and what the patient wants doesn't always marry. And so we take it all into account and we try and put the right drug for the right patient at the right time. That's the crux. And and that's what this treat to target speaks about. Absolutely. So, so let's repeat that. So it's the right drug for the right patient at the right time. And and there's the awareness that, of course, I mean, you're dealing with incredible complexity here. Um, presented all the way from when you diagnose that this person has got IBD and then the process of working out what some kind of treatment plan would then look like. Absolutely. Yo, it's, it's challenging. <laughs> I mean, just so listen really, to it. It is, it is. And, um, you know, again, it, it, it's, it's also not a perfect science. That's the other, you know, a lot of the stuff we've got out there is, ba- obviously it's all evidence-based and it's, it's, it's based on data. But, you know, our drugs at best generally work Read any read any trials or data. Fifty to sixty percent of the time, and that's a good outcome. So, so you're dealing with, and that's I think why also there's so many new drugs in the pipeline because our current drug therapy isn't winning. We're not winning the battle in that sense. Mm. If we're only treating fifty to sixty percent of patients, what's what about the other forty percent? Yeah. So we've got a lot of room to improve still. I mean, there is room to improve, doctor. I, I'm curious about, so, so, I mean, you talk about the complexity of, of, of administering the treatment itself and, and the importance of getting the right drug for the right person or individual at the right time. And I wonder, and this is just me trying to simplify in my own mind for myself, are there different phases um, to the IBD treatment? In other words, um, even within some of this complexity we've discussed, um, is there some kind of phased approach? Is there anything where I kind of, you know, if I think about that treatment plan, uh, you know, in the first you know, first month or so, uh, these are the things I must stay away from. You know, this is this is the medication or, or the treatment I can expect to receive, followed by something else as time progresses. Um, if 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 um, if the condition gets worse, this is the route we might take. If it improves, we might take a different route. Is there some kind of treatment plan? Absolutely. Make it simpler for me, doctor. Sorry, absolutely. So um, there are two phases of treatment once we pick a drug, right? So there's what we call our induction phase. So that's upfront. So there's a certain dosing regimen that we utilize, and that's really across all the agents that we use. Um, and then there's a maintenance phase. So the hope is that we give the induction phase, and you may or may not have seen response by the time the induction phase is, is, is finished, but... Um, Thereafter, you would go into a maintenance phase. And again, um, when you have a patient who you are starting on therapy, at the beginning, you would say to your patient, or I, I say to my patients regularly, that this may or may not work, this drug. Mm. So you're already setting the ball. So you don't want your patient to hang their hat that this is you know, the be-all and end-all. Because if it doesn't work, then again, the worry is, but they come to you and they've lost confidence in you as the doctor because you told them this was going to fix them. So it's really important, I think, that again, the the reality is set, or, or rather the, the targets are set up front, but also you've got to be honest with your patients always up front and say that there is a chance that mm. this particular drug is not going to work for you. And if it doesn't, there are other options. And so that's important. It's important as well that mm. we as, as gastroenterologists know 
Um, and I suppose not to get too scientific on this podcast, but we need to know mm. when a drug is or isn't working. And we need to know when it's time to either escalate the dose or de-escalate the dose or change to another drug. Mm. But again, it's important to communicate that with your patient. I agree. I agree. The importance of, of, of knowing when when the treatment is or is not working and, and the resultant need to then obviously communicate with our patients. I'm curious about whether there are some challenges, and this is based on your experience. What are some of the challenges that, that you've had in setting and achieving some of these treatment goals for IBT, IBD? And, and I mean, what would you say to, to doctors and patients, um, you know, in order to address some of these challenges? Absolutely. So first and foremost, no IBD patient is the same. And uh, I think that's that's so important. Um, patients coming from different backgrounds, from different provinces, sometimes, and um, I, I think you know, I think that that those things also create their own challenges. You know, when you have patients in in KZN and you're trying to work out when the infusion needs to be, and you're in Joburg, you know, these are all real logistical um, you know issues at hand, right? So. Mm. The other thing comes in with ages of patients. So if you're dealing with a 16, 17 year old who, you know, is in their, you know, sort of maybe more rebellious years at times, those patients we know may default therapy, not Mm. because they don't want to take therapy, but for other reasons, Mm. you know, so there really are so many different challenges. Um, that we, you know, really experience and have to, to, to sort of face. And again, I think, I mean, I can give examples. I mean, obviously, without mentioning any details of patients, but absolutely, we've had patients who we've we've previously been on a drug and we've felt that they hadn't been exhausted on that drug, so we wanted to just try and optimize it, and then it didn't work. So now we have to look at the next step, you know, and we have to either change drug in this case, which we're going to do, you know, and you have to navigate your way. But I think if you can bar in with the trust of your patient up front, mm. I think that has so much you know, credence and, and value because then if the drug doesn't work, they mm. know you have their back and they know as the patient that you are going to do what needs to be done for that patient to try and improve their situation. So it comes back to that same point, that rapport, that that upfront, you know, relationship with that patient becomes so important because you are going, it's guaranteed almost, you will have mm. bumps in the road. There are going to be flares in the disease. And your patient needs to know, or rather, I suppose you as the patient listening to this need to know mm. that you can talk to your doctor when that happens and that we will be there to make a plan. And and I'm going to deviate a little bit from, from, from my next question because I think you've, you've sparked something um, just listening to you. You're saying, look, you've had experiences where some cases presented as more challenging. And so I'm going to ask if you're willing to just share a story with us. Um, a short story of a particular situation where perhaps it really was a challenging situation, and you know you're able to sit here with me and say what what continues to 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 really work is is to build that rapport and and to win that that trust. Um, can you think of an example, a small anyana example? I can think of an example, <laughs> um, and again, it's a difficult case because first of all, the patient has got a, a difficult phenotype of disease. Right, so it's an aggressive type of disease that this particular patient in mind has got, and lives in a different province, and so um, she's had to come up to Joburg on more than one occasion at no real much time. I didn't give her much time. Phoned up and said, "Listen, I need to get you here because we need to do X, Y, and Z." 
and got on a plane and was here and did it and 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 went back. So we treated a component, tried to sort that component out, only then to to, to find out in certain blood results that unfortunately that drug that we had tried was no longer working. Mm. So now I had to come back to that patient and say, listen, to the patient and her folks, and say, listen, this drug is no longer an option. Hmm. I need to change your therapy. You know, and so what happened recently, I had to, she had to come up again, right, from KZN. Hmm. All challenges. You got to think of all the logistics behind that. She's at school, she's studying, she has to take time out, you know, flights, you know, so all of this. From a monetary point of view, it mm. all adds up, right? And so, you know, and now we're actually very much in the process as we are speaking mm. of getting um, authorization for that next drug, mm. you know? So that's been a, 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 that is just one example of a difficult journey. But I can, you know, I had a patient the other day who was doing well and sent me a message to say her symptoms are coming back. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So now I've got to get her in. And we've got to optimize therapy, you know? And so there's a, there, there are multiple examples I can give you. But again, I just think that the patient must know that they can chat to you and, and bring that to your attention. Because if a patient does not tell you mm. and you don't know, and if the patient, and, and this again is an important component for patients to hear that, that compliance with the therapy they're on is so important. So oftentimes patients start feeling better mm. and they think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm great. I'm fine. I'm going to continue and stop my treatment and off I go. And what happens? They do that and they flare up. So mm. compliance is so, so important. And to also just have an open line with either the doctor or the nurse or whatever sort of, you know, communication has been put in place. Mm. It's just of paramount importance. And I mean, I love that last point about the responsibility of the patient and and I mean I mean I started getting a little teary actually as you were speaking because I was reminded of of somebody who, who who's working in corporate has a you know she's successful lucrative kind of job in in, in the banking sector and um, I discovered that she's just discovered that she's got some kind of autoimmune disease and I think just sitting in conversation with her um, and and realizing the extent to which once you've been diagnosed with something. Most people don't know who to talk to. She said, I've, I've, I've tried to speak to my husband, but he can't make sense of this. Um, I can't engage with my colleagues at work, and yet this plays out in my mind every other day. Um, I struggle to engage with my parents because they have no clue what's happening. And I think it's important to emphasize, you know, really build that rapport with your healthcare provider. So, so engage with your doctor. Don't hold anything back. And then to your point, um, you know, follow that treatment plan that's been assigned to you. Um, don't get better, get excited and say, now I can kind of just discard that. Then you have the flare up. So I think just even those points are so critical. If we're speaking to the person who, who's, who's dealing with, with, with the sickness or, you know, or the, um, chronic condition or the chronic condition absolutely so <laughs> so just to your point um uh, it's so important right and 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 so uh, i don't know if this is sort of where we're heading to next but there are other other channels mm. and that's so important and i obviously i'm going to be focusing on rbd yeah, but for all these sort of chronic diseases there are groups there are um i know for for rbd there are facebook groups mm. um there are there are lots of tools that we try and advise our patients to go look on. So there's various websites that provide patients with with information. Because it's not fair for me to say to you, you know, I understand what you're going through. Because yep. 
I don't understand what the patient's going through at all. Like I'm saying to you, I like to hope I understand the disease process to a degree, but I don't understand what you are going through. It's about time. Because I'm not in that position. So I think, and so it's very important that like-minded people interact. And so that's where these groups come in. Because, for example, the friend that you just mentioned now, you're right. Her husband can't relate if he doesn't have the disease. And her parents can't relate. Mm. They can hopefully be there as a as a as a support system. But they don't know what she's going through on a day to day basis. Mm. And that's where these support groups and they are out there. They are there. Mm. They are real and they provide so much comfort to patients. It's not even a question. I mean we actually recently had our conference now. It's called our Sages Conference and uh, it's really our annual gastroenterology conference. And what was fantastic is um, some of the colleagues did a, a day of patient, so it was, it was actually a session for patients with mm. IBD. And it was all about IBD patients coming together and being educated. So, so by doctors, but there were nurses and then there was all the patients together. And what does it do? It just, there's this unity. There's a feeling of, I'm not alone in this. Yep. I'm not the only person in the world with Crohn's. Mm. And it's, it's massive. It's got such a huge impact on people to deal with the mental component, the mental health care component of it. Mm. You know, and that's, I think it's such a huge component. And, and, and if patients can get control of that, it also helps their outcomes. As I would imagine it would. Um, Absolutely. Because if they're dealing with the kind of mental or the psychological aspect of things, um, it will have an impact in terms of the, you know, the associated recovery or healing. So, so doctor, I actually want to move a couple of steps back because sure. I think we spoke about um, the treatment plan. We spoke about the importance of the correct treatment for the, you know, for that particular person at the right time, et cetera. Are, are there any other, um, you know, aspects that a patient could consider? And here I'm thinking about, you know, lifestyle modifications um, in line with the treatment that a person is receiving. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's a really very valid point that, so, um, you know, we always advocate for a, for a healthy lifestyle, but I suppose, what does that mean? You know, patients want to know what do you, you know, sure. What what am I supposed to do to be healthy, right? So very important. We, you know, we want patients to be exercising regularly. We want patients to, you know, if possible, three to five times a week, we talk about getting out there, doing moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise. You know, we're really getting your heart rate up. And that's all important, but also the dietitian. The dietitian is key, right? The dietitian plays a huge role in, 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 in treating these patients. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that in children, um, some of those children just get dietary therapy to, um, to, to treat their, uh, their IBD. And, um, you know, that, that becomes, um, obviously very important. Um, but not only to treat the patients, but, you know, the nutrition becomes really important. And that's in both kids and adults because, remember, if the, the gut is inflamed, it can affect the absorption of uh, of various nutrients. And so we need to try and give these patients the correct diet. So I can't emphasize that enough. Dietitian is absolutely key. The other role players, other allies, so physios can come into the fray. Um, and importantly, um, mental health care practitioners. So psychologists and psychiatrists, are again of paramount importance in these patients' journeys because again, this is not just the gut that the problem lies. Sure. And so and so are you saying if I'm I want to understand, are you saying, doctor, that that upon having, you know, getting the diagnosis, the IBD diagnosis, 
one of the things that, that definitely has to happen is that I get some kind of dietitian. Is this assigned to me? Um, if I'm unable to afford this, what's, what's the route that we then take? Just help me to better understand. I mean, you're talking about a number of specialists here. So, so what, what would happen then? Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, again, a good point. Um, the hope is that, uh, the, you know, the medical schemes, again, I suppose it depends where the patient may be because this is not, this is whether it be in state or in the private healthcare sector, the sector, there's no, uh, um, there's no difference in the way these patients should be managed. Mm. So, you know, will someone be assigned to a patient? Not necessarily. Uh, we would refer you to a, a specific uh-huh. dietitian that I would, let's say, utilize regularly. Um, and again, that would be whether it's in state or private, that's irrelevant in this case, in theory. Um, and, uh, and, th- and that would help to sort of provide, you know, you, you as the patient with the direction you need. Mm. Um, because again, you know, there's certain people that specialize in certain areas. And so that would make sense that you would go to a dietitian who's able to provide you with that information. Mm. Um, I get a bit nervous to tell patients to go and Google an IBD diet. <laughs> Cause for me, that I, I find patients get more confused and more stressed. And more anxious when you when they do that, they need to walk this path with professionals. So I always try and reiterate, and and actually I reiterate that point with patients with any GI disorder because I I feel that there's so much information on the internet, whether some some good but some not great, and mm. patients can end up just becoming confused. That's a very valid point because I think often we go to Doctor Google, Teacher Google, etc. And so it's a very valid point to make because, you know, if I've gotten the diagnosis, then Google can help me move forward. Um, and so, and so, I actually almost want to repeat that to say, please, uh, really heed, uh, you know, the the guidance uh, that you're given by your healthcare professional, and and go the route of 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 walking that journey with the specialists who know what they're doing. Um, don't Google. <laughs> I think that's so key. It's so important. It's so important. And, and also us as the practitioners, we need to empower our patients with the right tools. Mm. So there are various websites that we can, you know, vouch for and say, rather go and look at this website or that website where you're going to get, you know, good information mm. rather than the patient just sort of taking it upon themselves and saying, cool, let me Google ulcerative colitis and what should I do? Mm. And then, doctor, you know, we 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 go on this journey together. Um, I've stopped googling. Um, I'm trusting my healthcare <laughs> professional practitioner, my doctor, and and we get to the place where we st- we start to see improvements. So you spoke about the biological component. You spoke about the mucosal healing. I think you called it. Uh, how does achieving the mucosal healing now impact the long term management of the disease? Okay, so. The, the, the sort of, um, the, the paradigm has shifted significantly. So probably 20 or 30 years ago, the goals of treatment were to make my patient feel better. We didn't know enough at that stage about the disease and, and, and these more intricate components, right? So, mm. so over the years, we talk about treated target. Those targets have been, are moving. It's like a moving goalpost. We're aiming for higher degrees of disease control, for lack of a better term. So symptoms are, of paramount importance for both the patient and the doctor. But from a doctor point of view and from a biology point of view, we want to aim for deeper levels of remission, deeper levels of control. Because again, we know that that if we don't control that inflammation, even if you're feeling better, we know that the risks of the complications are still there. Mm. So so what the impact that 
achieving or trying to achieve deeper levels of remission, what that has for a patient is what, and what we try and tell our patients is that this will lower your risk of complications down the line. It will lower your risk of potentially needing, um, you know, surgery for a complication. It will lower your risk for cancers. Mm. So, so that is what we try utilize to, um, motivate patients to try and achieve a deeper level of, um, you know, of remission and healing. It's also, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, a contentious issue at the moment because, mm-hmm. you know, even in the, 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 the doyens in the game, um, you know, in, in, you know, whether it be in the States or in the European countries, et cetera, uh, you know, the debate is how deep remission do we need to achieve and at what cost? So if you've got a patient now who's feeling great mm. and at most there's mild inflammation still going on in the colon. So, you know, do we need to push harder? You know, do we need to give patients more drug? at a higher cost with possibly more side effects? Mm. These are questions that are actually still not fully answered. So so and and this is this is where the again evidence-based medicine, precision medicine, trying to find those answers is still not all very readily available. You know, so we 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 have to set realistic targets. Mm. I think that's the key, realistic targets within all these um parameters. Have you ever had a situation, Doctor, where you know, you walk the journey, you have a sense, um, you know, that there, there, there's significant or sufficient mucosal healing taking place. Uh, the patient coming back to say, I feel like I've, I've, I've walked the journey. I, I feel like I'm in a better place and they opt out. I mean, have you ever had a, and I'm just thinking about some of what you're saying about kind of so. <laughs> So I think actually, at, at which can, point do we draw the line and say yeah. and say we're comfortable that this person has been sufficiently healed? Is it just linked to the goals? Is it? Absolutely. It's yeah. Help me help me better understand. Question. So so I think <laughs> maybe if I can try and reword that a little bit, and that's mm. about de-escalation of therapy. Mm. Okay, because there is that component. So you have a patient who's well controlled symptomatically, mm. and we're winning in terms of you know our biomarkers so we look at our bloods and the inflammatory markers are normal we look at our stool uh, and there's no inflammation in the stool markers we scope a patient at a point in time and mm. everything's looking good right so so we're winning and the patient's doing well and oftentimes i think to your question patients will say well can i stop treatment mm. okay so it's a huge component and the answer is in certain instances the answer is yes we have got ability to de-escalate. The word is really de-escalation of care, de-escalation of therapy. Mm. And so um, there are times when we do this. Um, but again, the conversation is very important to be had with the patient that there is a there is a fairly hard chance of relapse in patients in two years, let's call it. But what's great, okay, we can give patients peace of mind if they've responded to drug A, the chances are that if they do relapse and we start them back on that drug again, the chances are very good that they'll respond again. Mm. So we talk about things like a drug holiday and and de-escalation of care. Absolutely, it's an option. But again, right Mm. patient for the right treatment modality because that is key. And there's certain treat, there's certain phenotypes within a, within the disease Mm. um, where you wouldn't take that chance. So again, that's where it becomes really important. Where, you know, if you've got a patient with perianal fistulizing Crohn's disease, mm. 
you are going to – it's highly, highly unlikely that you're ever going to stop that patient on therapy mm. because the risk of doing that is very high. Mm. So, again, phenotype of the right patient, but if they're doing well, it is certainly a conversation that you can have with the patient. Okay. We're, we're, we're coming to, to a close, and I'm curious about – um, some recent advancements in treatment options. And this is something you've alluded to from the beginning or from the onset of our conversation to say, you know, we, we, there are conferences taking place. Uh, we're having global conversations about, you know, a host of things as they relate to not just the diagnosis, but the management and treatment of IBD. Are you able to share any recent advancements um, in treatment options that th- that typically even might align with a more personalized approach uh, for some of the patients? And I think we're going to start to close it off there. Sure, absolutely. So uh, again, right patient, right drug. Uh, there are new drugs coming out, which is really exciting. Um, they are oral agents, some of them, which 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 is also great in the sense that a lot of our current therapies are either intravenous or or subcutaneous injections. So what's nice about oral agents is exactly that, that you can drink a tablet, right? Uh, what's nice about some of these new molecules uh, or new agents is that uh, because they are not biological agents, so to speak, um, the risk of developing antibodies in the drug, you know, losing response is lower. So again, a nice sort of exciting component to it. Unfortunately, well, a lot of the drugs are not yet available in South Africa, and the hope is they'll come here fairly soon because they're going to be my next question. They are registered overseas and they're being used overseas, okay. and they should be here. So the hope is that they will be coming here soon. And again, it's just going to open up our armamentarium of what we have available. You know, so um, I think it's a very, a very exciting space, um, mm. particularly for patients. Because mm. what does it mean? It means that if my current therapy is not working, we have other options. So I think living. And and this might be a controversial statement, but I think as a patient living with IBD in 2023, mm. um, there are it's it's important to have solace knowing that there are new agents, you know, on the horizon. So I think um, I think that's very exciting mm. for both provider and patients. And I think for me, just I mean, just listening in on on. On the conversations that you say are taking place and how there's continued interest in wanting to get to a place where we really can give the right patient the correct medicine or the right, you know, uh, treatment at the right time. Um, I think that's very encouraging. Absolutely. Um, and so I think, again, just that emphasis on building uh, you know, that, that, that candor building that, that wonderful relationship, uh, with patients. And this is speaking both to doctors and to the patients as well. Um, I think there can never be less emphasis on the importance of getting yourself educated. And so, you know, ask the questions. Um, I loved what you said about the support groups, uh, find a community, um, that's going to assist you as well as you manage some of that psychological and mental, uh, you know, aspect of, of, of navigating an IBD diagnosis. Absolutely. If I can add one thing, just, um, for patients, mm. um, who are, uh, just sexuality is so important. So, so, you know, sexual habits, um, fertility, wanting to fall pregnant, all these kind of discussions are so important to be had with the doctor because our medications that we use can, are, are sort of will be, let's say, contraindicated or indicated in, patients of childbearing age and, and it's so important that we know and again I suppose that comes to the the trust issue the developing that rapport up front but it's so important that us as the healthcare pro- providers know what your plans are as the patient sure. and if you are saying look I want to have a baby hopefully in the next year or so 
Well, that is a big impact on how I'm going to treat you. And on that, on that very note, sorry, I'm div- I'm di- diverting a bit. It's fine. But on that very note, with regards to pregnancy, it is so important that we know that if a young lady who's pregnant, the best chance she has of, of sort of staying in remission is if she's in remission before the pregnancy, meaning that we need to make sure that. So if the plan is I want to fall pregnant, mm. that has a real impact on how we're going to treat you because we want to get you into remission quickly before you fall pregnant. Because if you fall pregnant and you're not quite yet in remission, if you start having flares during the pregnancy, it can affect the baby, it can affect the mom, it can affect the whole pregnancy. And so if we can plan accordingly, mm. it can make such a difference, you know, to, to that whole that whole journey. So I suppose, again, what I'm really asking everyone out there, the, the patients really is, you know, talk to your doctor. Mm. Tell him your plans. What are your targets? What are your targets? Mm. Not just what are my targets. Okay, and I think that's a wonderful place to to call it a close. Um, Let me thank you once more, Dr. Mark Ostrovsky, specialist physician and gastroenterologist. I think it has been such a fruitful conversation. Uh, And so thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Most welcome. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.